Our scripture reading this morning is the book of Joshua, chapter 11, verses 16 through 23. You can find that in your pew Bible on page 187. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country and all the Negev, and all the land of Goshen, and the lowland and the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel, and its lowland, from Mount Halath, which rises towards Seir, as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel, according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. Good morning, church. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would be very present with us this morning in the preaching of your word. We pray that you would move in grace during this time that we might hear and believe the word that you'd give me grace to preach it with clarity and power, and that you'd give my friends who are gathered here grace to listen well and to act in what they hear by faith. We give this time to you. We pray that you'd bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm wondering this morning, and I have one question for you. Do we have your sword? Do we have your sword? The sermon this morning is designed to unpack that question. And I'm hoping that your answer will be a courageous yes. Do you remember the scene from The Lord of the Rings? I'm thinking of the first movie, The Fellowship of the Ring, where Frodo declares at the Council of Elrond that he would take the ring to Mordor. And then he receives the support of the Fellowship. Maybe you've seen the scene in the movie. Gandalf the wizard says, I will help you bear this burden, Frodo Baggins. And then Aragorn says, you have my sword. Legolas says, and you have my bow. And then Gimli, the, the short, zealous dwarf, says, and my axe. <laughs> and thus forms the fellowship. Different characters banding together with one mission and with one aim. CMC, we have one mission. To build Christ's church here in Vermont through the proclamation of the gospel. That's what we do. We make disciples by preaching Christ in a place that desperately needs to hear about Him. And I'm wondering if you've bought fully into that mission. Do you have a vision for how God can use you to help build His church here at CMC, here in Vermont? And I'm wondering if you're all in, ready to labor and bear weight and sacrifice in order to advance the kingdom here. Do we have your sword? Could you use some encouragement to that end this morning? 
Would it help if God's Word stimulated you and called you to service with a fresh intensity and with a fresh vigor? Well, then grab the outline in your bulletin and turn with me to Joshua 9 and let's jump in. We're covering four chapters today, Joshua 9 through 12. And I'll begin by reading chapter 9. So, so get to Joshua chapter 9 and follow with me as I read the entire chapter. <clears throat> as soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn-out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? And they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you, and where do you come from? And they said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him, and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on that day we set out to come to you. But now behold, it's dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Shaphirath, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them, because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. 
quite a story. Joshua has led Israel to enter the promised land. They crossed the Jordan River, marching through on dry ground, and set up camp at Gilgal, which serves as their home base throughout the conquest. Gilgal is where, where the nation was circumcised and where they reinstituted the Passover, if you remember. And Joshua then leads Israel from Gilgal to Jericho. Rahab and her household are spared, and the rest of the city is destroyed. Israel devotes it to destruction. And then continuing to march west through the middle of Canaan, Joshua and Israel come to Ai. Ai too is destroyed and devoted to destruction. By the way, I'll pronounce the city Ai, just to mix it up a little. Last week, Mitch said I. This week, I'll say Ai, and you can decide for yourself how it's supposed to be pronounced. So here in chapter 9, the report of these comprehensive and divine victories is spreading throughout Canaan. All the kings in Canaan, verse 1 says, hear the report. They hear about the destruction of Jericho and Ai, and they gather together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. See that in verse 2? They're of one heart and one mind. They, they plot together to fight against God's people. And that sounds like Psalm 2, if you're familiar with Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, it says, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. That's exactly what's happening here in Canaan. The kings act as you might expect unbelieving enemies to act. They set themselves against the Lord and against His servant Joshua. In contrast to the kings in verses 1 and 2, notice that verse 3 starts with but. In contrast to those kings, the inhabitants of Gibeon act differently. They hear what Joshua has done to Jericho and to Ai, and they hatch a plan. And it's quite a plan, isn't it? Gibeon's located among the Canaanite people only about 19 miles from Gilgal. Israel's home base. It would have been the next city on Israel's list to destroy. You cut right across Canaan, west to east, by going to Jericho, then Ai, then Gibeon. So the Gibeonites employ trickery to fool Joshua in Israel into thinking that they've come from far away. They say in verse 6, we've come from a distant country, so make a covenant with us. And they show Joshua their provisions. This bread, oh, we can smell it still. It was warm and soft and fresh. And now look at it. It's all dry and crumbly. These wineskins, these clothes, our sandals, brand new when we left. Now look at them, all worn out. Well, the, the men of Israel see all this, even take and inspect some of the provisions. That's how I read verse 14. <clears throat> and we're told that they don't ask counsel from the Lord. They simply accept what they see. And Joshua makes peace with the Gibeonites. He makes a covenant with them. He decides to let them live, and the leaders swear a covenantal oath. They seal the deal. And now three days later, they figure out that the whole thing was a ruse. They found out that the Gibeons, in fact, live close by, right there in Canaan. Gibeon, as I said, was the next city on Israel's path of conquest. So after making the covenant, Israel sets out from Gilgal and goes to Gibeon. And as they arrive, they learn that its inhabitants are the very ones with whom they just swore an oath. So verse 18 says that Israel didn't attack them. See that? They can't because of the covenant that they've made. So instead of attacking, they let them live and they make them servants, woodcutters, and drawers of water. 
And then starting in verse 22, Joshua queries them. Why did you do this? Why deceive us? You'll serve us now all your days. You'll only ever be cutters of wood and drawers of water in the house of my God. And the Gibeonites respond, because we knew for certain that destruction was coming. We were afraid. We did this out of fear. We wanted to live. Better to be your servants than to be dead. Therefore, verse 26 concludes, So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel. And they did not kill them. Joshua spared them. Made them his servants. Made them servants. Now in your outline, I call this desperate faith. Why do I say that? Well, I think the Gibeonites are an example of faith. When they seek peace with Israel, rather than fighting as enemies, they're displaying faith. We see in their example what faith looks like. They hear about the destruction of Jericho and Ai, and they know they're next. So they urgently and shrewdly act. They act wisely. So yes, they employ trickery and deceit, like Rahab did, but they're desperate. They're willing to do whatever it takes to surrender to the God of heaven and to unite with His people to avoid sure destruction. And they know God's Word well enough to know how to do it. They're very familiar with the Torah, very familiar with the law of Moses. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 10-18. through 18. These are God's instructions to Israel. The Gibeonites knew these verses very well, which is amazing as Canaanites. God said to Israel, when you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall, be forced, uh, shall do forced labor, shall be put into servitude for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. So terms of peace are only offered to cities outside of Canaan. Do you hear that? In God's law. But, Deuteronomy continues, in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, that's Canaan, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Gibeonites knew this. They knew their only chance was to be counted as inhabitants from outside Canaan, from a very distant land. Listen also to Deuteronomy chapter 7. The Lord instructs Israel again, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. Listen to this. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. That's God's word. And the Gibeonites knew these verses. They were well acquainted with the law of Moses. And they acted in such a way as to find peace with the God of Israel and its leader. They figured out how to get grafted in with the people of Israel and to avoid destruction. Do you see that? In verse 9, the Gibeonites confess, Your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. I think that's a sincere statement. Because even after the ruse is up, they confess the fear of the Lord. Look at verse 24. Why did they act like this? Because, they say, it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded His servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because you did this thing. Wow. 
That's an expression of faith. The Gibeonites received a report of sure destruction, a report that came from God's word, and they knew for a certainty that what God commanded in his law would come to pass. And they feared the Lord, which prompted action. They acted to seek peace with God and his people. That's faith. That's faith on display. It's much like Rahab's confession of faith back in chapter 2. She heard the report of Israel. She feared God and she expressed faith in him. And she was delivered. So here too, the Gibeonites entrust themselves to the God of Israel. They consider sure destruction on one hand and then consider being servants in the house of the Lord on the other. And they say, I would rather be a woodcutter or a drawer of water in the house of the Lord than to face sure destruction and ruin. And what's the result of this faith? Joshua lets them live. Verse 26 says that he delivered them. They were not devoted to destruction. Joshua does say in verse 23 that they're cursed. Do you see that there? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants. Don't let that trip you up. Joshua isn't pronouncing a damning curse on the Gibeonites. He's simply saying that they'll never again be peers. They've entered into a covenant where they will be forever subservient to Israel. And that's what happens. The Gibeonites are made servants in Israel. They serve the congregation of Israel, as verse 27 says, and they serve the altar of the Lord. They serve His temple. And it seems that throughout Israel's history, Gibeon serves well. They're never a thorn in Israel's side. It's not recorded once that they ever do anything wrong or cause Israel to stumble in any way. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Gibeon and its inhabitants appear in commendable places throughout Scripture. For example, more than once in 1 Corinthians, we're told, uh, 1 Chronicles, we're told that the tabernacle of the Lord is in the high place of Gibeon. That's where it was located and where the priests offered sacrifices on the altar there. Also in Nehemiah 3.7, a man of Gibeon works alongside Israelites as they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And you may remember that in 2 Samuel 21, David vindicates the Gibeonites. When Saul kills some of the Gibeonites, David acts on Gibeon's behalf and makes atonement that the Gibeonites may once again bless the heritage of the Lord. That's the phrase used in 2 Samuel 21. So the Gibeonites exercise and they illustrate desperate faith. They're warned of imminent destruction. They covenant with Joshua and the people of God and they're delivered. And they're defended. We see them defended immediately in the story from chapter 10. So let's continue reading and look together at chapter 10, verses 1 through 28. I know these are large, large portions of Scripture. Hang in there with me. Chapter 10, verse 1. Good stories, though. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly. Because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. 
And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came, up, came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent to Beth Haran and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Aijalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. These five kings fled and hid themselves at the cave of Makeda. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp of Makeda. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring these five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so, and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into a cave, the cave where they had hidden themselves, and they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remained to this very day. As for Makeda, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it, and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining. And he did to the king of Makeda just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Another amazing story. Here Joshua powerfully defends the inhabitants of Gibeon. Gibeon's attacked by a coalition of kings, five kings led by Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem. He hears the report about Jericho and Ai and how they've been destroyed. And he hears about Gibeon, how that mighty city had made peace with Israel, and then he fears. And he fights against Israel, as Canaanite kings are known to do. So the men of Gibeon send to Joshua, and they say, Come up to us quickly. Save us. Help us. They call to Joshua for rescue. 
and for further deliverance. And Joshua responds. After getting a word from the Lord, he comes upon the coalition of kings suddenly. And the Lord acts by throwing the enemies into panic. And then Israel strikes them and chases them as they flee. And as they flee, the Lord acts again. He throws down large hailstones from heaven. In fact, the text says that more Canaanites die because of the hailstones than because of Israel's swords. And then the story gets even better. It gets even more dramatic. In order to allow time for the nation of Israel to complete its victory, Joshua prays that the sun and the moon would stand still. And the Lord answers his prayer. The sun and the moon stop. Israel strikes its enemies with a great blow and wipes them out. Indeed, verse 14 is true. The Lord fought for Israel. What a display of divine power. Most certainly, this battle belonged to the Lord. And the kings, trapped by Joshua in the cave at Makeda, are brought forward as an example. Joshua bids the men of war to put their feet on their necks, and then he exclaims, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies with whom you fight. And the kings are hung on trees, as we've seen Israel do previously. A hanged man is cursed by God, according to Deuteronomy 21. These enemy kings are cursed in death and then placed back in the cave as a sign to Israel. So Joshua defends Gibeon and delivers the Gibeonites from attack. And at the same time, he advances the conquest. Fighting against this coalition of kings has taken Joshua into the southern region of Canaan. So once Gibeon is defended, Joshua captures Makeda, where the kings had hidden, and thus begins the southern campaign. And Joshua conquers all of the southern region of Canaan. Now I won't read all the verses, but he sweeps through Libna and Lachish and Eglon and Hebron and Debir, all southern cities. And then we get a summary of the southern campaign beginning at verse 40. It says that Joshua struck the whole land. He conquered the entire southern region in a comprehensive manner. How? Well, the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. That's how. It says so much in verse 42. Then Joshua and the people returned to Gilgal, their central home base. And then in chapter 11, the northern campaign begins. Once again, a prominent king hears a report of Israel's success and gathers other leaders to join him in an attack against God's people. You can see it right away in chapter 11, verse 1. Jabin, king of Hazor, Here's the report, leads the attack. And the armies come out, verse 4, with all their troops, a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. All the northern kings join their forces, verse 5 says, and they come together against Israel. Does that sound familiar? And the Lord says to Joshua in verse 6, don't be afraid of them. For tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. And the Lord does give them into the hand of Israel. Joshua strikes the northern armies and devotes them to their, and their cities to destruction. And he leaves none alive, just as the Lord commanded. He even hamstrings their horses and burns their chariots like the Lord commanded. And this prevents the horses or the chariots from being used by Israel in future battles. It was a tangible way for them to demonstrate their reliance upon the Lord. In Deuteronomy 17, 16, Israel's king is instructed not to acquire many horses. And you may be familiar with Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots 
and some trust in horses, but we, Israel says, trust in the name of the Lord our God. So Joshua conquers northern Canaan in full reliance upon the Lord, who's fighting on their behalf. The Lord leads them to victory and gives them complete rest. And Jonathan read the closing summary of chapter 11 during the, the scripture reading. When chapter 11 ends, Joshua's conquest is complete. He took all the kings and all their cities in battle, devoted them all to destruction, except for Gibeon. Only the inhabitants of Gibeon made peace with Israel. Everyone else fought with Israel and made war with Israel. And under Joshua's leadership and God's power, Israel prevailed. Joshua took the whole land, it says, and gave it for an inheritance to Israel. And the land had rest from war. There was finally rest. Now there's still work to do. There are some outlying regions that need to yet be possessed, and there are distant peoples who yet need to be driven out. The Lord promises to do that himself. You'll see that next week. But it can still be said at this point that the conquest is complete. Real peace and real rest have been won. The land is ready to be given as an inheritance according to Israel's tribal allotments. You'll certainly see that next week. Land allotments dominate most of the forthcoming chapters. So Israel has rest. It's a sweet final word in verse 23. The land had rest from war. But it's a hard word in verse 20, isn't it? The Israelites took all the Canaanites in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy, but be destroyed as the Lord commanded Moses. That's a hard word. Here the scriptures give us a window into the mind of God. We get a a glimpse of the divine counsel. His divine counsel. God in His sovereignty and omnipotence as the Creator does with His creation as He pleases. He's the potter and we're the clay. And this is a hard word for us because we don't like to be thought of as clay. At least I don't. I struggle with this. I do. It makes me feel small and weak and helpless and without control. That's the problem. It offends my pride and my arrogant perception of self-sufficiency. But I'm a creature. I'm not God. I was formed from the dust of the earth, made by God. He breathed life into all mankind, and He alone sustains each one of us. And so I'm wholly dependent upon Him. Who do I think I am? Makes me think of Romans 9. Where are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? It's a a hard word. These are hard verses, but they're clear. God chose as the sovereign creator of man to devote the Canaanites to destruction. He hardened their hearts and, and didn't show them mercy. Which, by the way, does not remove their responsibility. They had sinned and rebelled against God and they were punished justly. They deserved destruction. But God is in control and He purposed that the Canaanites should receive no mercy. Except, of course, the Gibeonites. And there's the wonder. He did choose to show mercy to them. He made peace with Gibeon and He was not obligated to do that. Not in the least. So this is a, this is a hard word. This is a humbling word. 
but it's a word lined with grace. God is sovereign. God is righteous. He's just. And He's also merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, I think we can move quickly through the final chapter of our passage, chapter 12, because it's a repetitive, detailed review of Joshua's conquest. In verses 1 through 6, we're reminded that Israel defeated two kings east of Jordan when they were yet to have crossed into the promised land. Israel defeated Sihon and Og under the leadership of Moses. And then in verses 7 through 24, there's a list of 31 kings whom Israel defeated west of Jordan under Joshua's leadership in the land of Canaan. And the list begins with the king of Jericho, naturally, and ends with the king of Tirzah. And the table is set for the giving of the inheritance, Israel's possession according to their allotments. And that's Caleb's burden to preach next Sunday, Lord willing. So in four chapters, Israel has gone from conquering Jericho and Ai to completely conquering the land of Canaan. Nothing is left undone by Joshua. All that the Lord had commanded him, he accomplishes. These chapters have described how Joshua leads Israel to conquer Canaan. They've chronicled his encounter with the inhabitants of Gibeon and then his sweeping victory over all the enemies who fought against Israel. But the real purpose of these chapters, the divine intention behind these chapters, church, is to point you to Jesus Christ. You know that. Like all the chapters in the Bible, these are designed to put Jesus Christ on display. These verses that we've covered are all about Him. They are. Joshua, as you know already from our series here in Joshua, is a type of Jesus. Joshua's conquest is Jesus' conquest. Joshua's victory is Jesus' victory. And now listen to me, brother and sister. Joshua's encounter with the Gibeonites is Jesus' encounter with you. How can I say that? Joshua's encounter with the Gibeonites is Jesus' encounter with you. You were once an enemy of God, weren't you? And an enemy of God's people? You stood apart from Christ, outside of His church. You had no peace. You were a sinner, and in your path was ruin and misery, as Romans 3 said. You didn't know the way of peace. You knew nothing of His presence and were estranged from Him because of your sin. And at one time or another, you received a report of certain destruction. Someone shared the Scriptures with you. Someone preached the Gospel to you. And you came to understand that you were condemned by God's law and that judgment was impending. And this imminent judgment became real to you as the Lord convicted you and as He put the fear of the Lord in your heart. You're Gibeonites, church. You were warned of the judgment to come and you responded in faith. Brothers and sisters, you acted in desperation because it was told to you for a certainty that you would be destroyed. And you believed the report. You listened and you feared greatly for your life. And so you sought Jesus Christ for peace. Brothers and sisters, you went to Him. You went to Jesus and you cried out, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. And what happened? What happened? Jesus made peace with you. He made a covenant with you and He let you live. He delivered you. He delivered you from the darkness of your sins. He delivered you out of the hand of judgment. He delivered you from eternal wrath in hell. 
And how was he able to do this? How could Jesus make peace with you, a guilty sinner? He was able to make peace with you because he offered, he suffered destruction in your place. That's how. He atoned for your sin and then he conquered the grave. Remember, Gibeon was a three-day march away from being destroyed. Verses 16 and 17. They were as good as dead. Destruction was coming. Judgment was coming. But on the third day, verse 18 says, the people of Israel did not attack them because of the covenant. Instead of being destroyed, they were given life. This is a picture of resurrection. Instead of death, they were given life on the third day. Church, this is a picture of your salvation. Jesus, though innocent and pure, was made sin on your behalf. He was the spotless Lamb of God, the very Son of God, who did nothing to break God's law, who knew no sin whatsoever. Yet He was devoted to destruction on the cross and was punished with your judgment. And He stood in your place. And then three days later, He rose from the dead, triumphing over your sin and your death and reversing your fate. Thus, He's able to deliver you from destruction and in life, give you li- instead give you life and peace. Joshua's peace with the Gibeonites is your peace. Aren't you glad you're a Gibeonite? God had mercy on you. And Jesus made you a servant in the house of the Lord. The Gibeonites were happy to become servants. Woodcutters, Drawers of water in the house of the Lord? Okay. And that reminds me of what the psalmist says in Psalm 84.10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in tents of wickedness. Praise God, brother, sister, that you've become a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And praise God all the more that you're not just a doorkeeper or a woodcutter or a drawer of water. You've been made a priest. You, church, have become a royal priesthood, always and forever, enjoying the presence of God and serving Him with sacrifices of praise. Rejoice in that. Be glad that you're a Gibeonite. Now, unbelievers here, those of you who aren't Christians, I have to be honest, I have a lot of trouble understanding why you wouldn't want to make peace with Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, why would you not urgently seek Christ for peace? Why wouldn't you desperately and eagerly seek Christ at all costs? My goodness, today is the day of salvation. Judgment is coming, but it hasn't yet arrived. And I'm wondering what you're waiting for. Why are you being passive? Lay hold of Jesus Christ. Believe the Gospel and live. Look to Jesus Christ for rescue from your sins. If you're not coming to Jesus by faith, it must be because you don't believe that Jesus' uh, judgment is coming. Or perhaps you don't believe it's near. The Gibeonites confessed that for a certainty, destruction was coming. And it was immediate. They knew it was. So they took action. They acted in faith. And I'm here to say to you this morning that judgment is coming on the authority of God's Scriptures that say it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. I'm telling you for a certainty that if you remain in your sins, you will face God's judgment. 
And that judgment's swift. It's coming quickly. Life is a vapor. It's a breath. And you have no idea how long you'll live. One day, very soon, your soul will be required of you. Judgment is sure, unbeliever. And it will come rapidly. And only a fool would ignore the warning and pretend that it's otherwise. Don't act like the kings of the Canaanites who dug in their heels and fought against Joshua and Israel and were destroyed. Act like the Gibeonites. Urgently make peace with Christ. Throw yourself on His mercy. Christ can become your peace. He offers you rest. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. I'll give you rest for your souls. So do you want peace? You want to be at peace with God? You want rest for your soul? You want to be delivered from the judgment to come and rescued from eternal hell? Then come to Christ. Believe in Christ. Put your faith in Him. He was destroyed on the cross for sinners just like you. He died so that He could give you life. He was judged on the cross so that you could be delivered and set free and have eternal life. So come to Him. Now, CMC, you have been given peace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's become your peace and He's granted rest for your souls. You really do have peace and rest in Him. But complete victory hasn't been won yet, has it? We still have enemies. We remain in a spiritual battle. We continue to be engaged in a fight of faith. Therefore, we must resolve to fix our eyes on our champion and our general, the Lord Jesus Christ. Together, we must follow Him and rely on His leadership. He will destroy all His enemies and give the church rest. He will. Because He's leading the church to complete victory. He will lead us one day to inhabit the new heavens and the new earth in its entirety, in its completion. He will give it to us as an inheritance. And we will know full and complete rest. All our enemies will be conquered and completely vanquished. Satan will have been thrown into the lake of fire. The wicked and unclean will have been cast out. Sin will no longer be present. Death will be no more. That day of complete peace and rest is coming for the people of God. But it hasn't arrived yet, has it? But Jesus is leading us in victory as we march toward that day. He has won our peace, and now He's leading us in power. Well, what does that look like? What does that look like, church? It looks like Jesus empowering His people to advance His kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel. That's what it looks like. Brothers and sisters, you've been made soldiers of Jesus Christ. You don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, Ephesians says, in heavenly places. You're in a battle against the powers of darkness and you're fighting for souls. You're fighting to plunder Satan and his kingdom and to rescue sinners, delivering them from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Satan has been dealt a great blow and Jesus is marching in triumph. And now you're being called to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and to fight as men and women of war. Notice what's said to the men of war in Joshua 10.25. Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom 
you fight. Does that sound familiar? Have you heard that before in the book of Joshua? Do not be afraid or dismayed. God said that to Joshua in chapter 1, verse 9. And at the, end, or at the battle of Ai, Joshua 8.1. How about be strong and courageous? Have we heard that before? Yeah, God said that to Joshua three times in chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. But notice now here in chapter 10, Joshua is saying it to his men of war. And this call to arms, church, this deployment is Jesus' call to you. He died shedding his blood for you. He rose inaugurating the victory for you. And he ascended to God's right hand and is now leading you to build his church. And he's saying, don't be afraid or dismayed. He's saying, be strong and courageous. And he's promising you victory over the enemy and the spiritual forces of evil who are against the church. He's promising it. Jesus is plundering Satan's house, one soul at a time. And by his spirit, the very spirit of Jesus Christ, he's rescuing souls through your witness. Glance quickly through the second half of Joshua 10. Verse 29, do you see? Then Joshua and all Israel with him. See that? Verse 31, then Joshua and all Israel with him. Verse 34, then Joshua and all Israel with him. Verse 36, then Joshua and all Israel with him. They're conquering the promised land one city at a time. This points to your role as a church. You're now the ones who are conquering. Each of the letters to the church in Revelation 2 and 3 say so much. To the one who conquers. To the one who conquers. Seven times. One for each letter. To the one who conquers. So you should read this in Joshua 10. Then Jesus and all the church with him. Then Jesus and all the church with him. This is your charge to follow your champion. That's what this is. Well, what does that mean for CMC? What does that mean for CMC? I think it means this. It means that it's time as we face a new ministry year and perhaps a new season in the life of our church, it's time for all of us to gird up our loins and to unsheath our weapons and to say, I'm all in. It means it's time to say, you, CMC, have my sword. That's the mentality that this spiritual conquest calls for. How many people are in this room? 200? 250? What if each person who is part of this church stood and said, you have my sword? What if we all fixed our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ and said, I'm all in. You have all my time. You have my energy. You have my money. You have my agenda. You have my life. You have all that I can give in an effort to build the church here in Vermont. Brothers and sisters, God has deployed you to march in step with Jesus Christ right here on the front lines in one of the neediest states of the U.S., in the neediest region of the entire country. And He has you here for a reason. God has equipped you with the gospel, and He's calling you to active duty. And I'm saying, let's dig in. Let's be resolved. Let's decide that we're all in this together. Let's link arms as a band of brothers and sisters like men and women of valor. And let's advance Christ's kingdom. Let's preach Christ and Him crucified without reservation and without shame, without any hesitation. Let's just spend ourselves for the proclamation of the gospel together. 
Many of you know that the elders just had our annual retreat. Mitch mentioned it in the service earlier. We met for several hours on Friday night, and we met for a full day yesterday. We talked a lot about our vision for this church. And we asked ourselves, we asked one another, whether we were fully bought in. So elders, in light of this text, are you ready to set the pace for this church? Are you ready to draw your sword and lead the charge into battle? Are you eager to lay down your life as an example for this church? I think we all are. I hope we all are. But gentlemen, if we're not, this is the time to do some soul searching. We need all soldiers on their feet. And church, how about you? Brothers and sisters, are you ready to take up arms? We want each one of you to be involved. We need each one of you to be involved. You can play a role here that nobody else can play. Give us your unique contribution and give us 110%. Imagine. Imagine if our numbers increased to 350 or 400. Imagine if visitors were converted and we were baptizing every month. Imagine if our budget went up as a result and we could do more. Imagine if we could plant or revitalize a local church in maybe just two or three years. Maybe send some elders and some members to a new work and multiply our efforts. We want to win the lost for Christ. We want to grow. We want to multiply. We want to take ground for the sake of the gospel and to expand Christ's kingdom and to plunder the enemy's camp. Brothers and sisters, though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging a war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. What do we wield? The Word of God. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's powerful to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Verse 5. Receive the command of Ephesians 6.10. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the armor of God and go to work. Which is a call to evangelism. It's a call to proclaim the gospel to your friends and your families and your co-workers. It's a call to get behind our outreach efforts as a church. Men come to our rally points. They're designed to be monthly outposts where you can regroup and rearm and relaunch in your effort to engage this battle. They're, they're little councils of Elrond, opportunities to rally together and refocus on Christ and His mission and to say again and again, you have my sword. Ladies, continue to invite your girlfriends to women's investigative Bible studies. Be a Debbie Austin. Create your own. Not one elder in this church is going to prohibit you from doing a Bible study with people who don't know the Scriptures. So multiply studies. Pair up with other ladies in the church and gather some outsiders to study the Scriptures. Men, do the same thing. This is happening, by the way, throughout our church. Men are leading little studies with their friends. Women are doing what Debbie shared during the share time. They're gathering together and discussing the gospel. Some of our youth are getting up at 7 a.m. every week to read through the book of Romans. Did you know that? This kind of thing is happening, and I'm saying let's do more of it. Will you join us and, and help do it if you're not doing it already? Will you commit to praying for God to save souls through these various means? <coughs> Invite your friends and coworkers to church. Bring them next Sunday morning. Leverage our outreach events. Men, sign up your friends for the golf scramble. Moms of preschoolers, convince your friend to come to Mom Connections on September 11th. 
Bring a friend to Kirsten and Abigail's baby shower. Ask your classmate to join you at the youth group kickoff party. Talk to your neighbor about coming to community group. There are a hundred ways to do it. I don't care how you do it, but I'm beckoning you to do it by the Lord's grace. And you can do it with optimism. We can. We can do it with confidence, and we can do it together. The Lord will fight for us just like he fought for Israel. If he can stop the sun in its orbit and throw down large hailstones, think of what he can do through your proclamation of the gospel. Uh, I would say he can build his church. I think he can do it. He can cause dead sinners to rise to new life. He can deliver lost sinners from the kingdom of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of his beloved son. He's doing it. And so let's believe that God has many in this state who are his people. Sheep that are ready to hear Christ's voice when we preach. Let's believe that there are Gibeonites among the people here in Vermont who will hear the warning of imminent destruction and will make peace with Jesus Christ, who will respond to the Lord out of faith and repentance. Let's see what the Lord will do if we all enter into the battle together. So, dear one, do we have your sword? Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this word from Joshua. We thank you that you've given us a word from on high, a revelation of your Son. You didn't have to warn us of a coming judgment. You could have just executed justice in the blink of an eye. And yet here we are gathered together under the merciful provision of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving us this opportunity this morning to gather under your word. And I pray that you would send us forth with courage and boldness and by your grace that you would allow us to make a difference in this state for the sake of Christ. We give all these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.